welcome to episode four of Advocacy in Court. Our topic in this episode is what you might try to do when faced with prejudice or bullying inside a courtroom. I've labelled today's episode as Fight Today or Later. Which will that be? And the reason for that label will become, I hope, clear by the end of this episode. If you haven't yet heard the phrase fearless advocate, you will hear it at some time during your career. The uninformed think that it's a sign of respect, but for the most part it's not. For the most part it's a criticism of the advocate as being someone who has taken an unnecessary risk without thinking through the consequences short or long term. There's a rule of thumb that if a point is not taken at trial, then it's not available on appeal. This is said to be justified by the assumption that the advocate at trial is assumed to be competent, and if they did not take a point, it's because they saw the advantages of not taking it to be greater than the advantages of taking it. But the reality is that it's one thing to take an objection to a piece of evidence being proffered by your opponent. It's quite another to make an application to a judicial officer that they recuse themselves for either actual or apprehended bias. And what of the person in court, be it judicial officer or opponent, who delights in bullying the less experienced advocate? There is nothing to show that lawyers as a group treat other lawyers any better than what happens everywhere else in society. Hence, it should come as no surprise that acts of prejudice and bullying come into a courtroom as they come into every other part of the community. The simplest example of bullying is where there is a vast difference in resources between the two sides in a case. This is very often the situation in both civil and criminal cases where the state is one party. Here's a specific example. If a legal conduct board, by whatever name, wishes to take action against a member of the legal profession, then as a general rule, their resources will far exceed those of the solicitor who is attempting to clear their name. Yet another example of prejudice is where your opponent or judicial officer want to demonstrate to the outside world that they are across and in tune with some current community fad and that they will do this at the expense of you or your client by making prejudicial remarks in open court in the hope that the media will pick them up. Or, alternatively, the judicial officer, when summing up the evidence, will selectively misdescribe or choose to omit relevant evidence so as to unfairly blacken a party or a witness. Turning to bullying, 
This too is quite easy to describe. For example, if you have an opponent who likes to sledge you with a hand over their mouth or by speaking behind a pile of books or the computer at the bar table, by making inappropriate remarks about you or your client or your witness or your case. A common enough example of judicial bullying is the office holder who is invariably late coming onto the bench, but so very quick to tear strips off a member of the profession, who, often for a very good reason, is delayed in coming to court for a minute or two. To deal with instances of prejudice or bullying takes some training. It's not enough to hope that when it happens, the words will readily come to mind. They won't. You need to have the right words and phrases stored and ready to go. And the right words and phrases are ones that allow you to make the point without jeopardising either your client's case, which is your first priority, or your career, which is a second one. Being sledged by your opponent creates a wish to give back in kind. That's understandable, but it may not be best for your client. Taking on a willfully errant judge is noble, but what will it do to the work that you're getting as an advocate? Will you become known as the advocate who speaks first and thinks second? Will you become known as the advocate who is a risk for clients who may find their case jeopardised by judicial antipathy to their advocate being you? Over the years, I've found the following advice from others to be very helpful to me in my practice. First of all, Wherever possible, when things are going wrong, seek a good mentor's advice as to how they see the problem and how they would handle it. Secondly, never forget that your client's interests trump your interests. Third, don't be a futile martyr when there's always another case and another day when the battle might be better fought. Fourth, don't expect support from colleagues if you do take on a judicial officer. You are on your own. Finally, don't expect anything of judicial conduct bodies unless yours is the complaint that finally puts beyond doubt the frequency and extent of egregious misconduct by the judicial officer about whom you are complaining. It is useful to have some standard comments available in your memory. For example, with the opponent who's sledging you, simply stop what you're doing and look at the judge, look at your opponent and say, Your Honour, my opponent seems most anxious to make a point. Let me sit down while they do so. And for the judge who makes the improper remark, one response is to say, Your Honour, having heard of the fairness with which Your Honour is always trying to conduct proceedings, I'm sure 
that I must have just misheard you. And when it is necessary to make an application that a decision-maker recuse themselves for actual or apprehended bias, or to ask that a juror or the whole jury be discharged, then I suggest that the way to do that is to start with, Your Honour, there is an application which regretfully I must now make. Never forget that the words that are actually on the transcript are very important when the conduct of the various parties and or judicial officer comes to be looked at afresh in an appeal forum. Here are some tips that will help you to withstand whatever comes from the bench or from the other end of the bar table. First, ensure that you have up-to-date signed instructions from your client. The reason for this is, is that sometimes a judicial officer will say to you, do you have instructions for that? And it's best that you can say, I do. Next, have you subpoenaed all your witnesses and explained to them why you're using a subpoena, namely that if one of them fails to appear, that you will have a basis on which to ask the court for an adjournment, while either you interpose another witness or make arrangements for a witness to come later. As a way of guarding against judicial misuse of power after you finish your submissions, I recommend that you end those submissions with a polite but very clear remark along these lines. Now, Your Honour, were you expecting me to address you on any other aspect of this case? This is so that if there's a surprise judicial act, such as an intemperate extemporary decision, which raises points about which you did not address, you are able to say firmly and on the record, with respect, Your Honour, I did ask you whether you wanted any other points addressed and you, and you replied, no, on the transcript. Finally, let me give you some advice about what to do when unhappily you suffer a brain freeze on your feet. What do I mean by that? I mean that something so unexpected happens that although you're on your feet and supposed to be speaking, you don't know why you're there what you're supposed to be saying, or what should happen next. It can happen when a judge at first instance, or an appeal bench, suddenly refuses to allow you to address on what you and your client have always regarded as your key point. Now, if you have somebody assisting you in the courtroom, then that person can re-engage you in the case by writing you a short note, or getting up and making some remarks to you very quietly at the bar table. But if you're on your own at the bar table, then it's vital that, first of all, you recognise that you are in a state of trauma. And secondly, and most importantly, that because of the way in which you mark your progress while you're on your feet, 
you are able to look at the notes that you have in front of you, whether you're holding them or they're on a lectern. And it clearly shows you, because of your habit of always marking where you are in your case progress, that you know exactly where you are and where you'll be able to take off again once you have reached down and sipped that half glass of water to which I've referred in previous episodes. In the next episode, that's episode five, we'll finish off our discussion of aspects of stress and move into a discussion of the all-important interview which you have with your witness, an interview which you have even if there's already a written statement. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. Bye for now.